before we even dive into the Scripture and worship in this, before we even touch the passage, I want us to look into some issues surrounding this passage. Okay, In most of your Bibles, if you have one in front of you, um, even on my digital one on my iPad here, and in my one here in print, as soon as I get to verse 53, there is a big bold bracket before the number 53, and after the number 11 in chapter 8, there's another big bold double bracket. Why? Why is that offset in Scripture? Well, I think it's important... There are a lot of theologians and a lot of people, and I really struggled with this passage. Should we even touch it? Or should we just skip over it? Well, there's a reason that it's set off with brackets, and that reason comes down to one simple fact, but we'll look at a lot of things about it. The simple fact is, it's not in most of the original texts that we have surrounding the book of John. So most New Testament scholars either think it is not Um, legitimately John's writing and some even say we shouldn't touch it at all Um, this this passage is it like I said is not in the the bulk of the original it's in none of the oldest writings that we find it's in no writings that we find of the book of John until after the fifth century okay so before that it's never ever in scripture and the father the church fathers from there to about the 10th didn't accept it at all as scripture, not because it's a problematic passage, simply because it wasn't in the oldest text. Because this is called textual criticism. We get the text of scripture, which was written down by lots of hardworking copyists known as scribes, and they would handwrite every single word that was ever passed down through this stuff. But what we have to get to is what is the evidence here of this passage. And I think it's very important. There are guys who will preach this passage and spend the entire time on just textual criticism and talking about it. I don't want to do that, but I am going to give about half of our time to that this morning. So, like I've already said, it's not in the oldest manuscripts. And the other big, big, big evidence that it, is, that it, is, it doesn't match Johannian, which is the word we give for John being the author, it doesn't match his other writings. It doesn't match it in a lot of ways. Um, and that is, Andreas Kossenberger says that. He says, he says I, can't even, I can't even accept it. Now, I had Dr. Kossenberger as a professor. Um, I couldn't accept some of the things he said. Cause, well, a lot of times I couldn't understand him because of an accent. But um, <laughs> that was the only reason. Brilliant man. Loved him a lot. But, man, he was hard and he was fast in everything that he taught and believed in. If he said he believed something a certain way, he lived that out in his life and his church and everything he did, Okay. But Kossenberger says, I don't even touch it because it doesn't match the other writing. Then there's guys who I really respect, like Leon Morris, who's another tremendous, tremendous um, um, theologian and, and commentary writer. And, and I think the name Leon Morris is just a cool name. I don't know why I think it is, but I do. But he says, you know what? The grammar here does make it impossible to be Johannine. He goes, the evidence is, 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 is too clear that it's not writings directly from John. He said, however, the, it doesn't mean the writings should be completely neglected so we'll look at a couple of things um, real quick the first thing like i said it's missing from all the early greek manuscripts before the fifth century um, the earliest the earliest of church fathers omitted it completely because they were scared of it um, and scared of it being false um, if you read <coughs> excuse me um, if you read chapter 7 to verse 52, and then you flip immediately to chapter 8, verse 12, there's a really good flow to the writing. Okay? 
It reads real smoothly, which is something John characterized himself as a writer was the smoothness of transitional statements, the smoothness of his right reading. In English, we don't necessarily see it because now we've broken things up into chapter and verse. And, but in the Greek, it's very poetic and it's very, um, it's very line and verse written. He was a purposeful writer and this passage breaks it up. Um, also, when we do start seeing it introduced into manuscripts, it's always in the book of John, but it's in three or four different places. And the reason it's stuck here in John 8 is because that's where it has been stuck the most in some of the ancient writings. And like I said already, the style and the grammar don't look like Johannian. So when I say all that, once again, I need to say that we took people, men and women, who this word of God, guys, is infallible. It's, 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 it's correct from front to back. That doesn't mean that in the Greek... There's not people who didn't have the best penmanship sometimes as scribes. There's, that doesn't mean there's not letter variations sometimes when we get into translating Hebrew to English or Greek to English where we go, wait a minute, that letter doesn't line up and that makes it a different word, but then we read the sentence as a structure, you go, oh, they, prop, they misspelled. There are mistakes in handwriting that does not discount the Word of God. And let me tell you like it is. They copied this text over and over again, and we have, we have on record 5,801 handwritten copies of the entirety of the New Testament. If we were to take all the copies and bring them all together, we could build 5,801 New Testaments out of the ancient manuscripts. There is no other writing in this world that has anything like that. As a matter of fact, if any of you know, Julius Caesar wrote a, wrote a story or a book called The Gaelic Wars. There's only been ever 10 copies of it found. But nobody ever questions if it's correct. Okay, 10 copies of the Gaelic Wars. There's only two of, um, Tacius was a history writer. There's only two of his writings ever found. And yet, it's produced as perfect history. And we're talking about 5,801 that have typos, well, can't call them typos, I guess, right? Handwriting errors. But the story doesn't change. This happens to be one of those places that seems different throughout them. So when we determine these stories and we determine parts of Scripture that we see as textural criticism into them. We've got to figure out how do they fit and if they're right and if they're not. So all that is to say this story doesn't, as I said, fit necessary to John's writings or in this position that it's in. And it may not be original to the text. However, it is kept in this canon, in the scriptural being, and put it together for several reasons. Like I said, Dr. Kossenberger would cut it out. And I got in trouble one time because... I'm calm and quiet and, and meek in class. And I said, it's not, I mean, it's a little bit funny. It's not that funny. Um, I said, Dr. Kossenberger, isn't that kind of like Ben Franklin cutting up his Bible and pasting it together the way he wanted to read? He said, get out of class till tomorrow. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, he was right. I was wrong. I, I, I've accepted that. I don't know how I was wrong. But, um, but no, it's really, it's really not the same as him saying, I'm not going to teach it because I just can't verify. However, later on, after the 5th century, when it became a story that was told a lot, it was be- then some of the later early fathers, early churches, began to accept it um, as a place that, that had a story throughout the history of Scripture that made sense, and they felt it necessary to include. One of the reasons they felt it a necessary story to re- include is because it was recorded by two different 
first century historians that were non-biblical historians, non-Christian historians. They weren't trying to write the story of Jesus. They just happened to write the story of Jesus because he was there at the place and time. They were historians outside of the belief system. But they both wrote about this particular incident. Okay, so when they wrote about this incident, it gives a confirmation to the story in a lot of ways because these are historians that wrote separate of one another as far as history shows them to be. Another reason we can include this in Scripture is that this story confirms theology about Jesus. It confirms the, the, the things that we see about Jesus in his life. It confirms who he is. It fits into the things he did. It fits into the reasonings and the teachings that he showed us. And I'll, we'll look at another passage in a few minutes that does the same thing, that we don't textually criticize because it's all in all the original writings. However, the story is extremely similar. And if you have um, ever read the book of John, you probably already have that story in your head. So, not only does it affirm that, it doesn't contradict any other theology. So there are books that, there, there is a, an entire series of books, collection of books called the Apocrypha. And some of the reasons that some of the Apocrypha books are pushed out, or as you will see from time to time on TV, what was the most recent one I think is called the Gospel of, um, no, Thomas is not the most recent. There was another one that came out, that's the Gospel of somebody, and I can't remember what it was, about three years ago or four years ago, that contradicts some of the teachings of Jesus. So we can't go, oh, that lines up with the rest of our scripture. Because it doesn't. See, here we don't have that. We don't have any contradictions. Not only is there no contradictions, this is no new theological ideas. It doesn't add anything that we don't already understand about Jesus. It's just another picture of Jesus. So because of all those things, and because of, we see in this passage a very clear picture of the saving grace of Jesus, and, and because we get down to, when we get down to it, it doesn't change anything about who Jesus is, and it was confirmed historically outside of Scripture, it gives us the ability to at least go, we can study this passage. We can study this passage. There are things in my office on the shelf right now that if you come to me and say, hey, Pastor, can I read that book? I'm going to say no. I'm going to ask you some really hard theological questions. I'm going to go, do you understand these four things? Then no, you don't need to read that book until you understand these things. Because in that book, that particular writer is contradicting purposely Scripture on these topics. So we, there are things that we have removed that some people have tried to drive into the Bible. This is, does not seem to be one of those stories. It just finally stuck, and it stuck here in John 8. If we ever get to go to the book of Mark, we'll have another pastor of textual criticism that we won't preach on. And so, but it's in there. So, um, in God's sovereignty and in his grace, he has given us this story. So hopefully today we will be able to learn from it. We'll be able to love Jesus more. That we can take this passage and, and we can believe that there's truth in the story and truth for ourselves. So essentially the question is, is the story helpful to us as believers, to us as lost people, is it, is it also helpful to recognizing Jesus in a better way? The answer is yes. Did this happen? More than likely, we have to say yes because of, like I said, the outside historical influence on the passage and being written about because there's a lot of writings out there about Jesus' life that aren't in Scripture that are confirmed through other historical sites. Okay? And the third one, if you want to say, was it originally in the New Testament? Is it original text? I can't say for sure. But that's why we get to have brackets. That's why we can set it apart and go, if it wasn't, okay, we understand that it wasn't, but we don't have any contradictory issues with it. Because that's a lot of stuff that I think is really important to us or I wouldn't have spent any time on it. 
But I want us to hear that. And I want us to understand that because that's where it starts and that's where we have to understand. When you see things in your Bible, like brackets, setting off a passage of Scripture, figure out why. Because there are things that are printed in our canon today that 90% of biblical theologians say should not be in this book that contradict scriptural concepts. Very few, but there are a few. So we can't take this particular printing of the Word of God and go, this is perfect. But we can go, God in who He was when He put this Word together is perfect. And therefore His Word is perfect. And He can use it even if it was mistakenly written or incorrect. He can still use it. So with all of that backdrop, let's read our story today. Let's read 753 through 811. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her at, uh, in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now it, in the law of Moses, command us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said, excuse me, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And, then he, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And they heard it. And they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. He stood and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. God, may you add your blessing to your word today. Take me out of the way. Help us to take this passage for exactly what you intended and understand you greater in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A little context here. Well, first off, who doesn't love this story? I think we all love this story. It's, one, it's a hard one to teach people that we need to be critical of when we look at Scripture because it is a story that is endearing to our hearts. Um, we like the story. But what's going on here? What has just happened? We are in this ever-growing, ever-greater um, host- hostile times. Um, it's in- increasing anger and hostility toward Jesus, um, toward His message and toward His Word ever since the healing of, um, of, of, the, of the man at the pool on the Sabbath. And then he's, He has begun to speak against the parts of the law and he has begun to call himself greater than the law and he has begun to explain to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and all these guys that they are worshiping the law, not the God of the law. And these groups want to silence him. These groups want him dead. They want to come get him. They've tried already to arrest him and failed, but they want him removed from their lives. So what is their next step? We can't get him in the, at the tabernacles, the feast. So what's their next step? Let's trap him. Let's trap him. Let's catch him in a bad time where he's got to make a, a fast decision. Let's get him in his word. Let's, let's get a hold of him, arrest him, and we're done. Over with. They'd have him. Six months from this moment, Jesus is put to death. Six months from right here, give or take, Jesus is dead. This is the plan. This is the plan to get Jesus. How can we catch him? doing something that we can actually arrest him for. Well, let's break down this passage. And let's find out what Jesus really does here. 53 and 1 say, But 
they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. To me, I, I, I don't know, I, wrote on the, I think I wrote on the PowerPoint that it's Jesus is alone. He has no place to rest. I, I just, once again, as you read Scripture, it's, it, just, it breaks my heart because here, the word here is, is Jesus in the Greek is, is went fully alone, like all by himself. Nobody went with him this time. And he goes to the Mount of Olives and we see that he's there till the next morning. So I don't know if he was praying. I don't know if um, he was worshiping. I don't know if he was hiding and sleeping. I don't know what he's doing. But it's just, it's crazy to me to think of the God who created everything is a stranger in the, his, the own, his own world. The Jesus who came down to love is rejected by so many that he, he has to go away on his own. And like I said, maybe it is to spend time in prayer. Maybe it is because that was his quiet place. But man, it just seems that as the, as the heat is mounting, Jesus finds himself yet again alone. It's just amazing to me. Verses 2 through 5. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. And then this is where in the movie that dun dun dun, right? The, the, the scary music would kick in. Uh, or the sky would go dark. The wind would, rain would start, right? The scribes and the Pharisees came. And they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us, Stone such women. So what do you say? If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Leviticus chapter 20, both of those two passages teach us that this is exactly what Jewish law taught. That this woman should have been stoned for her adultery, for her sin. But in the Mishnah, the, the Jewish rule book, which to me, I go, I really, I look at it and I, I go, man, the, the Torah just wasn't enough. They had to break it out and write it differently. Now, granted, what it did is it broke down the histories out of the law and put the law in place. Kind of like if you were to go to the bookstore and buy a um, book of scriptures for leadership that just kind of looked at a lot of leadership patterns. It's kind of like, like that idea. And, and, but what it is, it's their entire law written and coerced to work the way they want it to because they took the law out of, out of Scripture and they, they added some and they probably took out some, but they kind of packed it into this book that they actually used here. Here's the deal. Based on this book, the woman should be stoned. She should have been stoned based on that law. The second thing is, based on the exact same law, out of the exact same book, the man would have had to have been brought at the same time. He would have been buried. This is graphic and gross, but he would have been buried up to his waist, up to his thighs in a dung pit and had a rope tied around his waist and one around his neck and men would have come and pulled him until he died, pulled the ropes until he died. And then he'd have been left there to rot in that pit. That's what, that's what the law stated. That's how seriously, first off, God took adultery. That's how seriously God looks at marriage today. But for grace, men and women don't have to be killed for this stuff. Even though it is a spit in the face when we, when we have adulterous, even ideas in our minds, that, that it's a spit in the face of the God who created the covenant of marriage. And that's why the seriousness of the, 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 the penalty was so serious. Because God takes serious the idea of marriage and the covenant that it is. Verse 6. They said to test him. <laughs> I mean, John just comes out and tells you what they're doing, right? 
John never like sugarcoats. He's never like, well, maybe they had an idea that they were going to... No, no. They, they're trying to get in. They put him on test. It's a Jesus trial here. That they might have some charge to bring against him. They're searching so desperately for something to bring against Jesus. But the only thing he's done so far is turn water into wine to save somebody from being humiliated. Walk on water to, to, to his disciples and ride a boat with them. Feed a whole bunch of people with a tiny bit of food just so their bellies are full. And tell them how much the Father loves them and to look toward him as, as the representative of the Father. You can't really get a guy for the good things he's doing. But they're trying. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. I'd love to know what he wrote. I wish John would have told us. I wish John would have told us. A lot of people I've heard um, come up with concepts and, and, and ideas and they've, they've kind of um, stretched their, their, their imagination to figure out what he write. You know, what's he writing in the sand? Is he writing um, who, who's sin? So each person's sin? Is he like, yo, Brandon, <laughs> you know that temper you have? You remember when you was cussing last week? Um, you know, Timmy, uh, you have addiction issues. Uh, what's he writing? I don't know what he's writing in the sand. I don't know if he's just writing scripture about the greatness of his father. I don't know what he's putting in the sand. I'd like to know, but obviously it was important enough that John put it in there. So he's saying something. He's writing in the sand with some reason, whether he's ignoring them and trying to teach the story he's already teaching. Maybe he's teaching kids at this point. Maybe he's doing an object lesson with kids. That's a good, I like that imagery. But whatever he's doing, he's in this, and it's, it's a point to be made. So he's doing something. But here's the, the issue. There's a true dilemma here that Jesus is facing. They have him where they want him in this dilemma that he's facing. Jesus, are you going to follow Mosaic Old Testament laws? Are you going to do it? The law that your father, supposedly, gave to our father Moses. Are you going to follow this law? Well, if you do, then you're breaking the law of the people who govern our land at this time, which is the Roman government. So either you're going to break the Mosaic law, or you're going to break the Roman law, which said that uh, the Roman law had an edict that prohibited anybody from being punished or stoned for anything under the Jewish law without first being approved by the Roman government. So one way or the other, they've got him. So it seems. But see, the Sanhedrin don't realize, or the, the, I'm sorry, the Pharisees here don't realize that they've put themselves in a pickle. They've put themselves in a bad position. Because by the same letter of the same law, that rabbi's word didn't matter. This lady and the man should have been taken directly to the Sanhedrin because the law was the law. It was black and white. It's not like ours where we can have one law say something and somebody else shows in a different case and then we come up with the word. We come up with a new definition for like the words case law. Uh, there was no such thing as that back then. The law was the law. So they should have been taken directly to the Sanhedrin, to these ruling, to these governing people. But no, they took him to the rabbi, which shouldn't have mattered what the rabbi thought. It's the same thing as if, you t- if I open this word and I say, well, Jesus, and we'll look at this next week, says, I am the light of the world. But you know what? He didn't really mean that he was the light of the world. He's blah, blah. It shouldn't matter what I say if I'm wrong. It shouldn't matter what I say if the word says what it says. So that's the first person. The second issue here for the, for the Pharisees is, Where's homeboy? Where's the guy? You can't be adulterous by yourself. Where's the dude? Perhaps it's a setup. Perhaps it's just to get him caught up. See what he'll do. Perhaps the girl was set up by these men. Maybe this adultery never happened. We don't know. We don't know that part of the story. 
But where is he? The law clearly says he's supposed to be there. So there's an issue here. There's this brokenness here of these people who are claiming to know the Father and wanting to see justice lived out for the Father, but they don't see the God of the Old Testament the way the God of the Old Testament truly revealed himself. See, the God of the Old Testament, outside of the biblical understanding, is seen as vicious and vile and harsh and angry and, and, and justice prevails over all love and over all grace. And I don't see that at all. Heck, I look at the Israelites and I see how often he didn't just wipe them out. But yet he restored them graciously. See, they're not seeing that. Because clearly, they don't want to see this situation be redeemed by Jesus. They don't understand that he is there to redeem all things, though he has said it already. They're not looking to correct the situation. They're not even looking necessarily for this girl to get stoned. They're just looking to catch Jesus. See, they're not, they're not worried about what's right. They're simply worried about getting Jesus. Verse 7. They don't even, they're on him. They're on Jesus. They're, they're, who knows? You've seen a mob mentality. You've seen, you've been, maybe you've been questioned by people. Somebody got angry at you. Heck, I know the kids got angry before. Well, you thought we was going to go do this. And, I would, and then this one comes in with something. Like, well, we were going to, ah, somebody starts crying, right? Ah, you run in your room and hide, and then their fingers come under the door, right? Um, Worse, way worse here. These guys hate you. They're trying to get you. It's probably a lot of voices coming at Jesus. And as they continued to ask him, they didn't give him a chance to respond. They just kept berating him. He stood and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I love the original language here. Because it says a little differently. It actually says, let him who is without the desire to sin. It's a nuanced term. The word desire is not that you have to break down the, the original language and the parts of each word. And, and, and it's, it's not easy. But let him who is without the desire for any sin. Let him who is without desire for any sin cast the first stone at her. See, the law, once again here, states something that they're missing and they're, not, they're ignoring. See, the law states that these men, or whomever, whomever caught someone in sin, had to be the first one to begin the stoning. So they had to be the one to come out and hit the person with the first stone and then everyone else could join in. But the law also states that if this person is caught wrongly accusing, they are to be stoned immediately in the presence of those same people. And I'm sure these men have seen this happen. So what's, what's Christ to do? What do we see about Jesus? If this is a true story, what do we learn? Well, we learn that Christ gave a verdict. But his verdict is not for the woman here. It's for the accusers. And the verdict is whoever is innocent of any sin... Maybe even, maybe, maybe the guys know who was being adulterous with her. Maybe he wrote that dude's name in the sand. And that dude was like, whoa, I didn't know he knew, right? Maybe the sin was, somebody in there was with this woman. So whoever is innocent of sin, let him throw. See, Jesus didn't address here. He does not address her. He does not address her sin. He doesn't look at Mosaic law. 
He doesn't look at the Roman law. He doesn't even look at the seventh commandment, which is the, well, you know, the Ten Commandments. Whoa, Ten Commandments. We, we're terrible at keeping those. Who's not envious every once in a while, right? Whew. The seventh commandment, he doesn't touch any of that. Instead, his verdict addresses the heart issue of the accusers. He attacks their hypocrisy of their hearts. He comes right at them. He says, go ahead. Stoner, if you have no sin. Because what they've also forgotten is that Moses said that if you break one part of this law, you are guilty of all of it. And there's very few parts in there that weren't punishable by death. He comes at the heart issue. He says, what makes you think that with your unrighteousness, you can judge her unrighteousness? See, they came to condemn her before Jesus, and yet now they are standing condemned. You know, that's a hard situation to be in. I know from experience, sadly. Let me be really clear about what this passage is not doing, however, and not misrepresented in any way. This does not show that Jesus does not judge sin. It does not show that he is not the judge. That would directly contradict what we've already learned about Jesus from John 5.22, John 5.30, John 7.24, and later on, really drastically, in John chapter 12, where he is the judge of our sin. He is the judge of our unrighteousness. But in this moment, he is showing where the real unrighteousness is being revealed. See, this passage does not cast off or write off the ideas of living sinfully and being okay and right standing with Jesus. There are people who teach this passage, and as I've been studying legitimately on this one passage, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with it, what God do you want to do with this passage? I read and or listened to probably 20 or 30 other messages on this passage and was horrified by the things I heard pastors stand in pulpits and say, like, you know what, if you're living in sin but you've already had Jesus at some point, you must be all right. You know, eventually try to get it right. That Jesus doesn't look down on you, believer, if you choose a different alternative lifestyle. It's okay because you got him. My Bible says if I've got him, I'm looking for his holiness and I'm striving after it and only his holiness and not my selfishness and nothing else. This passage does in no way say that this woman is not guilty of her sin. It doesn't say that. I may be a little bothered by hearing some of this stuff. I may be a little bothered by people taking passages that are already hard to put in the Scripture that we have to look at and figure out why it's here. We have to criticize it and make sure that we understand. And then they are teaching contradictory Scripture out of it when it doesn't contradict anything else that Jesus ever did. It also is not a passage that says don't judge anybody. I've said plenty of times from this pulpit and other pulpits that this only God can judge me mentality came from Tupac, not Jesus. It came out of 90s hip-hop music. But it didn't really. It's been around forever. And this teaching right here is not saying that these men weren't possibly even correct in calling out someone in adultery. They're correct partially in the law. What he's doing is he's showing how much greater his grace and his love is. Here's what it says in verse 8 and 9. But once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And what did he write this time, right? Maybe he wrote, I love you. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. So he says it to them. 
He bends down, and they begin to walk away, beginning with the older ones, probably the ones bringing the accusations originally, the ones who desperately wanted Jesus because they were the ones losing the grip. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You know, rather than leaving, wouldn't it have been nice to have seen these men fall in repentance and allow Jesus' grace and mercy to fall upon their lives? Wouldn't that have been beautiful? See, I believe that's what Jesus wants here. I believe the passage is here not only to give an imagery of Jesus, but to give an imagery of ourselves and line ourselves up with these Pharisees and see where do we line up with our lives of sin? Where do we fall short in our holiness? Where do we fall short in our desire for holiness? See, rather than hearing Jesus say, he who is without sin cast the first stone, we should hear him say, you, you can't cast the stone because of your sin, but I can, I can forgive that sin. Wouldn't it have been beautiful to see these older leaders fall down before Jesus in worship? Wouldn't that have been awesome? But it didn't. It's not what happened. They walked away. Verse 10 is a beautiful verse to me. In verse 10, Jesus uses a term that he only used two other times. And he used this term for his own mother. And if we read it incorrectly in the English language, it doesn't sound beautiful or loving or sweet or kind. But it is. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He called her, Ma'am, Ma'am, young, young lady, woman. This term of respect and endearment and love. He didn't call her harlot, or hooker, filth, trash. He didn't call her guilty. He didn't call her an adulteress. He didn't call her worthless. He didn't call her any of those things that for some reason in our society and in that society, we call young lady. Why, why? Just let me ask you this question. Why is a young man who acts like a fool called a player? And a woman's called these other words. Guys, y'all, be, young men, we better start teaching them different. I dare a boy call my girl. Ooh, I don't care what they do wrong, I dare them. I got to pray about it right now. Because, I, I, I never. I, with, all the, with all the bad I did, and I tell people this all the time, there's some things I never did. I never disrespected women with things like this. With words. With our lifestyles we may have, but not with, not with words that stick and that hurt. Jesus says to her, woman. And just, just seeing all that you see about Jesus and other parts, I envision him reaching out his hand and speaking to her with such grace that maybe for the first time ever or for a first time in a long time, she actually felt that someone cared. Even just a little bit. See, Jesus was the only one not to use her See, the adulterous man, he used her for sex. And yet, he gets to run away from the story. Gosh, doesn't it seem like today's, nowadays? The Pharisees, they used her as bait to try to trap Jesus. But Jesus didn't use her. No. And if he did, if we can say that he did, it was simply to show grace and compassion. He showed her how much he loved her. In verse 11, she says to him, No one, Lord. 
She answers that question, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. He didn't say, neither do I condemn the sin you were committing. He condemns the sin. He says, neither do I condemn you. Wait a minute, though. Then he gives her a very clear command. This is not the hushed tone. This is not the, this is not the subtlety of calling her woman. This is, neither do I condemn you. Go, right now. Place your belief in me. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you to salvation. Come and sin no more. What grace and love must have been in the tone of his voice, such that she'd probably never heard. And then as I said, we can just go back a few chapters in this book of John. And you read about the travels of John, or Jesus. And he comes to a place called Samaria to a woman who has five husbands and yet is with another man. And he says to her, I give you living water. Go and sin no more. See, this is the essence of what Jesus says. Jesus simply says, go and sin no more, which literally is go from here and leave your life of sin and place your trust in me and I got you. He said, do this not because of the law, but because of me, because of my work, I will be condemned for you so you are no longer able to be condemned. I'm going to go to a cross for you. I imagine her thoughts. I mean, think. She's, she knew she was dead. She knew she was dead. She knew she was guilty and she was condemned. But instead of that, Jesus calls her to leave that lifestyle. He gives her digni- dignity and grace and forgiveness and calls her a woman. He gives her a whole new motivation and a whole new reason to follow after him. A whole new reason actually here to follow the law that was given and to stop with the sleeping around and the lifestyle she had lived. And I wrote it out, I think, for us on PowerPoint here. This is, this is just a couple of sentences, one, two sentences. Obedience to Christ is not about the rules that we see in this book. But it's about the grace that's been given to us. See, that grace that's been given to us, it should invoke within us such gratefulness that it leads us to obedience. But yet we read the Bible and we look at the things of Christian life and for some reason it becomes a list of checks and balances and rules and boxes to complete. And did I read my three chapters today to get through the Bible in a year? Which is a great idea to do. I'm not bashing that, but if it becomes a checklist, did I go to church on Sunday morning? Did I, you know, it becomes a did I wash my hair in the shower checklist and it's not necessary. See, what it is, obedience to this word, falling in love with this word, reading three chapters a day, coming to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a Tuesday or worshiping in your car on Monday or Thursday afternoon, you hear in Jesus' name said and you just start screaming at Him, yes, I thank you. Whatever it is, I don't care what it is. It's not about what this book says necessarily. It's about the fact that we feel His grace poured upon us in such a way that we don't need it from anywhere else. Nothing else is going to change it. He's already done it. That's what should invoke us to obedience. And that's what he told her. He said, be invoked to obedience because of me, not because of the law. See, for those of us who have him, we should have this whole new motive to pursue his holiness. We should fight for godliness and never be in the fear of being caught. 
But the problem is we've been caught. We've been caught because we're all sinners. We're guilty and we're sentenced to, to, this, to this sinful uh, a punishment. See, we no longer now, though, if we're believers, have to fight to gain favor or to elude and run away from guilt. Well, no, we don't have to. Now we should fight to pursue Christ because of his radical showing of favor upon us, his amazing grace. But what about the Mosaic Law? Here's one of the greatest things. I want to, I want to, we're going to wrap up with these ideas. Here's some things I've read and, and, and questions that I see that people pose about this passage. What about the Mosaic Law? What is Christ going to do about her sin because she is sinful? Well, no one else could use the words that Jesus used except Jesus. Because, you know, he's both the judge and he's the justice, but he's also the, the payments. So what about the Mosaic Law? Well, the real problem is that we can't see justice and harmony. I mean, I'm sorry, justice and mercy don't harmonize for us. I tell people all the time that I believe I could face just about anything in life at this point based on what I've been through and things I've had to deal with. I could, I could, I could face anything until someone hurts my wife or kids. Then it's just rage and justice. Like I won't. I, I know this about myself. I legitimately, in the past, when Debbie and I first got married, I lived like a vigilante. Like on our honeymoon, we were at this park and we were looking at. Okay, I made her go to an alligator farm. Okay, so and they had the world's largest captive crocodile. The thing is gigantic, and they were going to feed it, and I wanted to watch. Well, this man, about my size, decides to push my small wife of four days out of the way and step in front of her. To which we ended up having to leave the park. That just, I think that's enough, right? Okay, we, we couldn't stay at the park any longer. To which I said, fine, we're done anyway, right? Because I didn't see anything else. I didn't see Jesus at that moment, right? So I still struggle with this life idea. Because for me... Bring it. Say what you want. Do what you want. I'm, I'm all right with that. Because I, I can see you through Jesus' eyes now. Hurt my kids and that changes. I, I can't see past that any longer. Yet. I, I may never. Do I whatever? Older guys with older kids, whatever. I'm okay with that because I'm human. I have checks and balances. I have people in my life that know that, that I will call um, and say, come, come get me. <laughs> Handcuff me. Something. Um, because, but see, see, the Mosaic law can't harmonize justice and mercy, just like our brains can't. We just can't do it. What do we say to people? You made your bed, lie in it, right? No mercy, no grace. That's dad, I struggle there. I tell you, you did it yourself. <laughs> Not my fault you're in trouble. But see, when you take Mosaic law and you take Jesus letting her walk away, what we have to do is we have to find that moment to where they harmonize. There's only one place that it ever harmonizes, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Where they both perfectly coexist and are both perfectly completed. We won't see it anywhere else. See, the exchange on the cross is our sin and our guilt for Christ's righteousness. Our condemnation for His perfection. Our, our death for His life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for, the, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Her sin was punished 
It was punished. It was fulfilled. The Mosaic law was completely fulfilled for her sin in Jesus' death instead of her own. Are you not grateful that his death is fulfilling your sinful punishments? See, because the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that sin, 6.23 then tells us the wages of that sin is death. But Christ and his ever-loving sovereignty and beauty stood upon a cross, hung upon a cross, and died for that sin. He bore the penalty, thus fulfilling that Mosaic law. You know, the people say, well, Jesus, if he fulfilled the law, we don't have to worry about Ten Commandments anymore. We can do it one. I said, no, the fulfillment is here. It's not here. It's not surface level. We're still supposed to live our lives according to the Word of God. Maybe not every part of the law. Yeah, we don't have to wear certain clothing. And we, we get to wear, you know, I don't know if you like polyester, I guess you get to wear it. Um, you couldn't wear polyester if it would have been made back then. But they had certain clothing they couldn't, couldn't wear. We don't have those. But we're still supposed to honor him above all things. We're supposed to have no other gods before us and, and so on and so forth. But the fulfillment of her sin, Mosaic law, is completely justified and fulfilled in Christ's death instead of her home. See, without Jesus, we have a verdict of being guilty. See, the verdict from Jesus regarding our sins is on your own, you're guilty. People will teach, and people teach right now, pastors around this country and around this world, have your, I don't want to use that book title, um, you can, uh, you can get where you want to be. You can be happy. You can, you can be all smiles and cheerful life and everything will be good if you do these five steps and do it on your own. No, my Bible says that with all my own, I'm guilty, period, no matter what. But with Christ, it says, when you're with me, I see you as innocent. See, ultimately, here's what I love. Here's, what I, here's my favorite part of this whole concept, guys. It's not just God's righteousness. It's not Jesus, just Jesus' grace and mercy. It, it's all of these above. It's not just the fact that he speaks to her in such a loving, adorning term. It's not just the fact that he gives her forgiveness and grants to her the righteousness that he was, was about to die for. Simple six months later, just a short time later, he was going to give himself up for her sin. It's, it's not just those things. My favorite maybe part of this entire story is what everything that those men meant for negative, to catch Jesus and to have her stoned worked out for her righteousness. <laughs> thank you. That's what, she ought to go to him and go, thank you. Thank you for pointing out my sin. Thank you for revealing to me that I needed Jesus. See, just like Joseph in the Old Testament, he was sold into slavery and yet God brought him to a, a place of, of, of royalty. See, what's going on in our lives we may not understand. But the meaning of this story is, is always true. Jesus had a plan. And through these evil men, he worked out a plan of righteousness. If you know Jesus today, through your evil plan, which is the plan of self, the plan of me, the plan of my sinful life, he, he gave me righteousness anyway. So today, maybe you're here and you know Christ Rejoice in that righteousness. Maybe today you know Christ, but you have sinful, stylistic things going on in your life. You're, you're living in a, maybe a secret sin, or maybe a not-so-secret sin, maybe just secret from me here or us here. And that your family or other people know about. And you're defaming the name of Jesus because of it. 
And if nothing else, you're hurting yourself and those who care about you. Maybe you need to come and be reminded of that righteousness that's upon us and given to us. Or maybe today you just don't know. Maybe today you're like, I've never had it. I don't get it. I don't know how to get it. He says, go, come to me, believe, and go and sin no more. Guys, we should begin to pursue Jesus as deeply as we possibly can because he deeply loves and cares for us and pursues us.